Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Between the hours of 4 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I saw a strange marine animal resembling a serpent in the harbor in Set Gloucester. I was in a boat and was within 30 feet of him. His head appeared as full and large as a four-gallon keg, his body as large as a barrel, and his length that I saw I should judge 40 feet at least. I fired at him when he was nearest to me. I had a good gun and took good aim. I aimed at his head and I think I must have hit him. He turned upwards toward us immediately after I had fired, and I thought he was coming at us, but he sunk down and went directly under our boat. I have seen the same animal at several other times, but never had so good a view of him as on this day. Matthew Gaffney, 1817 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies, and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 39, The Monster of Gloucester. On August 6, 1817, two women walking along the shore in the harbor of Gloucester, Massachusetts, looked out into the harbor and thought they saw something strange out in the water. Moving silently across the glassy water, they saw a creature, perhaps as much as 60 feet long, swim for a while and then go down beneath the water and disappear. Four days later, the creature was seen again. Another woman, Susan Stover, reported that she was walking with her father near their house when she looked out into the water and saw the monster turning a full circle. A third woman, Lydia Wanson, and later a man, also saw the same thing that day, August 10th. These were not isolated occurrences. In August 1817, Gloucester was abuzz with reports of the sea monster. Most of them agreed with each other. The creature was like a snake, and various parts of it came up out of the water. It moved fast and was very flexible. Most estimates of its overall size put it between 40 and 100 feet long. Some saw it up close. The quote that opened this episode, from a young man named Matthew Gaffney, describes a close encounter with the monster. Gaffney said he was only 30 feet away, close enough to take a shot with a musket. The gunshot seems to have had no effect. Gaffney was, at the time, in the boat with his brother Daniel and another man named Augustine Weber. 
Both of them corroborated this story, as did a witness on the shore. This was not some kind of mass delusion. The sheer number of sightings and the reliability of the witnesses made it clear that there really was something strange out there. Furthermore, there was a historical precedent. A famous English traveler to New England, John Jocelyn, recorded a sighting of a sea serpent off Cape Ann, Massachusetts, that same area, in the summer of 1638. Was there really a sea monster lurking off the coast of Massachusetts, possibly one that had been out there for hundreds of years? People wanted to know. I've mentioned before on this show that newspapers in the second decade functioned very much the way social media does today. A story would appear in one paper and get picked up and reprinted by another. Copyright law wasn't understood the same way as it is today. Stories that caught people's eyes would go viral, appearing in numerous publications around the same time. And that's exactly what we see with stories about the Gloucester Sea Serpent. The Essex Register of Salem, Massachusetts, one of the most prestigious and widely read papers in New England at the time, quickly ran a story on the monster. Stories also appeared in Boston papers and got picked up farther away than that. Pretty soon, the Gloucester Sea Monster was a thing all over the Northeast. People started coming to Gloucester with the intention of finding it or catching it. One could imagine exactly the same kind of thing happening today. Imagine if somebody filmed a grainy cell phone video of what appeared to be a sea monster and posted it on YouTube. This is exactly the kind of thing that catches people's attention. The Gloucester Sea Monster, though, was more than just the second decade equivalent of a viral YouTube video, or a kind of meme that appeared on newspaper front pages and traveled at the speed of stagecoaches and snail mail. There was something big at stake in trying to determine what the monster was. In fact, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the Gloucester Sea Serpent was quickly co-opted into a broader story about national identity in the new United States, and part of a transatlantic battle, principally among scientists, about nature, time, God, and even the bare outlines of a world-changing idea that was barely starting to form in the second decade, an idea that we know today as evolution. Those are pretty high stakes to put on the shoulders of a possibly mythical creature that swam around in Gloucester Harbor, if a snake-like creature has shoulders. But that's what was going on in one of the strangest controversies I've encountered in the history of the 18-teens. So join me now as we try to unravel the watery mystery of the Monster of Gloucester. Good evening. As I often do before I get to the main show, I just have a couple of announcements. I have a new book called Jake's 88 that comes out on January 15th, 2019. Jake's 88 is a novel, a coming-of-age romance set in the year 1988, about growing up in the U.S. Midwest during that very confusing but totally awesome time. Jake's 88 is available in both Amazon Kindle format and also in paperback. If you're hearing this before January 15th, you can pre-order it now. Just go to Amazon, type in my name, Sean Munger, or the title, Jake's 88, there's an apostrophe there, and you'll find it soon enough. Related to that, I'm doing some off-topic episodes specifically about the history of the 1980s. The first one, Jake's 88 Special Part 1, dropped on December 23rd at the same time as the third part of the Napoleon's 100 Days series. I'll be releasing the second one, Jake's 88 Special Part 2, simultaneously with this episode. 
Remember, Off Topic is a series of bonus episodes where I talk about the history outside the scope of the 18-teens. I should probably really have a whole separate podcast, but what's the fun in that? No one's complained about Off Topic, and I assume if you don't have any interest in those, you just won't listen to them, which is perfectly fine. You're definitely here tonight because of the monster, right? I mean, a sea monster in American waters in 1817. It's almost an irresistible story, which is why when I stumbled on it a few months ago, I shot it to the top of the list of second decade topics, especially when I found a great source that's all about the monster. And in fact, the source is part of the story. How perfect is that? But in this case, there's more to it than that. Aside from the novelty of people seeing some kind of monster out there in the water, the case of the Gloucester Sea Serpent is part of a broader story of the intellectual and scientific development of the United States as a new nation. Remember, in 1817, America as an independent country was only 40 years old. The country was still very much in a formative period. But I'll get to that story. First, a little background. Sea serpents have been part of nautical lore since ancient times. The folklore and oral traditions of most ancient societies, at least most who live near water, have some mention of sea serpents. The ancient Hebrews spoke of monsters called Tananim, which are mentioned in several books of the Old Testament. The Leviathan, which first appears in the book of Job, is another more famous sea monster from Jewish theological tradition. I'm not even going to mention Jonah, that creature is identified as a whale, not a monster, But you get the idea. The ancient Greeks had stories of sea monsters. Aristotle wrote about them too. Norse and other northern European mythology is full of sea creatures. In Beowulf, the famous Old English poem, the heroes Beowulf and his friend Breca the Bronding are said to have killed many knickers, which is an Old English word for sea serpents. The existence of these monsters was pretty much taken for granted well into modern times. Ideas about sea monsters didn't just dwell in the realms of myths and stories, either. Sometimes people found things on beaches or out there in the water that seemed to be living proof of the legends. The oar fish is a type of fish that really exists in the real scientific world, which can easily be mistaken for your classic sea serpent. Oar fish are long and narrow, their backs and heads covered with spiny quills, and they can grow up to 36 feet long. Oarfish were not classified by scientists until 1772. Who knows how many sightings of them before then were thought to be encounters with sea serpents. Oarfish sightings are rare, but they're pretty extreme in real life. In September 1996, a group of U.S. Navy SEAL cadets at the Naval Special Warfare Center in Coronado, California, near San Diego, were on their morning run when they came across a 23-foot dead oarfish washed up on the beach. There's a famous photograph of these guys holding the fish. you got to see it to believe it, honestly. And I'll post it on the website for this episode. Take a look at that picture and then tell me it doesn't look like a classic sea monster. Then there are globsters. Really a fascinating and quite disgusting phenomenon. Back in the 90s, I was really interested in globsters and read a lot about them. Basically, a globster is a giant hunk of decomposing flesh that washes up on a beach somewhere. They have no heads, often no bones, and they're sometimes chewed up and bloody, and they don't resemble any known creature. Usually, globsters look like they've been dead a long time. In November 1896, a huge hunk of rotting something washed up on the beach of St. Augustine, Florida. It was 23 feet long, 7 feet wide, and weighed 5 tons, and it was covered in some kind of rubbery skin. A storm came and washed it out to sea, but then in January 1897, it appeared again on the beach. 
first thought to be part of a giant octopus, minus arms. Later analysis concluded it was the severed head of a sperm whale. But over the 20th century, scientists continued to argue about it. Tissue samples were taken from the St. Augustine monster, and the latest take is that it was, in fact, part of a whale. The earliest recorded account of a globster comes from just before the beginning of the second decade. On September 25, 1808, a giant hunk of flesh washed ashore on the island of Stronsay in Scotland in the Orkney Islands. The thing was 55 feet long and obviously much bigger than that when alive. It looked like the tail had been torn off. The thing had a stomach which was cut open and there was some kind of reddish meat inside, but the monster had no bones that could be seen. As soon as the Stronsay beast came ashore, it attracted the attention of scientific men, naturalists as they were called at that time. Gentlemen naturalists were what passed for scientists at the time of the second decade. Usually they had no formal training, but they read a lot of books and spent much of their time drawing animals and bugs and such and trying to classify them. If you've ever seen the 2003 film Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, which takes place in 1805, again just before the second decade, the Paul Bettany character, the, the ship's surgeon, he is a naturalist. This is the kind of person who came out of the woodwork whenever something odd turned up on a beach or in a forest. This was a time when study of the natural world was finally becoming systematized. The system for classifying animals, phylum, genus, species, etc., that was just becoming accepted across the Western world. The holy grail of this kind of study was to identify a new animal no one had ever seen or classified before, and to get it named after yourself or somebody you admired. This is exactly what happened in the case of the Stronsay Beast. John Barclay, a Scottish doctor who specialized in anatomy, studied reports of the Globster. It's unclear to me whether he actually examined it in person, and he pronounced it a species never seen before, which he triumphantly called Halcedrus pontopidani. Such modesty not to name it Halcedrus Barclayi after himself. But the name he did give it is important, and in fact relevant to the Gloucester monster that appeared 11 years later on the other side of the Atlantic. Barclay took care to name the Scotland Globster after a Danish bishop named Eric Pontopidan. Now this guy Pontopidan gets cred as one of the patron saints of what we today call cryptozoology, the classification of ultimately mythical creatures like the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, and the Chupacabra. In 1752, Pontopidan published a two-volume book called The Natural History of Norway, which contained descriptions of sea monsters and even mermaids. A famous incident recounted in his book was when a sea captain named Ferry said he encountered a sea monster off the coast of Norway in 1746 and even shot at it. The account was considered believable because Ferry's testimony was given in a sworn deposition. You're going to see that pattern repeated again. The Natural History of Norway was translated into English and published in London in 1755. This book raised the curtain, so to speak, on the modern phenomenon of cryptozoology. Not surprisingly, reports of sea monster sightings in the English-speaking world ramped sharply upwards after 1755. The Norway Kraken, as the monster Pontopidan described, became the first truly famous cryptid in the Western world. Now, somewhat unexpectedly, another character enters our story, a character we've seen before on the Second Decade show, none other than the sage of Monticello himself, Thomas Jefferson. If you wonder what Thomas Jefferson has to do with sea monsters, well, I'm getting there, just bear with me. 
In the late 1770s, as the American Revolution raged, Jefferson made the acquaintance of another Virginia planter and politician, and also a character on this show, James Madison. In addition to sitting around and talking about politics and the rights of man, Jefferson and Madison found, as they became friends, that they had a common interest in science and the natural world. The undisputed giant among naturalists in the Western world was undoubtedly a French nobleman named Georges-Louis Leclerc, better known as the Comte de Buffon. In 1749, the first volume of Buffon's exhaustive treatise on the, nat- on the natural world was published. The book was called, I'm going to butcher this, Histoire Naturelle, Générale et Particulière. In this book, Buffon spun a number of elaborate theories. One of them concerned the flora and fauna of the Old and New Worlds. Buffon maintained that large animals, you might call them megafauna, of the Americas didn't grow as large and were not as biologically advanced as those of Europe and Asia. When Europeans began to colonize the Americas in the late 15th century, they found a lot fewer big animals around than they expected. There were no elephants in the Americas, for example, no horses or cattle until the Spanish introduced them. The biodiversity of North and South America was, at least in Buffon's reckoning, seriously lacking compared to that of Europe and Asia. To say that Jefferson disagreed with this theory is an understatement. Having just played a key role in the American Revolution, Jefferson saw in Buffon's theories a kind of taunt, the idea that if the animals and species of America were inferior to Europe's, the people who lived there must be too, and that meant that the new United States couldn't and shouldn't be taken seriously as a nation equal to those in Europe. Long story short, a kind of friendly scientific feud opened up across the Atlantic between Jefferson and the Comte de Buffon. One of the reasons Jefferson wrote his book, Notes on the State of Virginia, was to catalog the animal life of Virginia and to prove to Buffon that American species were every bit the equal, biologically speaking, of European ones. In 1787, while serving as U.S. Ambassador to France, and about the same time his relationship with Sally Hemings began, Jefferson had the complete skeleton of a moose packed up and shipped to France at considerable expense to display to the Comte de Buffon as proof of the megafauna of the Americas. This incident, the showing of Buffon the moose skeleton, is depicted in the 1995 Merchant Ivory movie Jefferson in Paris, a film that everyone else in the world except me seems to hate. Anyway, the Comte de Buffon died in 1788, thus prematurely ending the debate with Jefferson, but the point had clearly been made. This time period, the late 1780s up till the second decade, saw nothing less than a transformation in how the natural world and natural history were viewed. It was during these decades that naturalists, particularly those interested in geology, were beginning to notice that the Earth was far older than they originally assumed. They were finding fossils in geologic strata of animals that didn't seem to exist anymore. The idea that the Earth was not thousands of years old, but perhaps hundreds of thousands or even millions of years old, was a profound leap in scientific thought, and one that was a necessary prerequisite for the ideas of Darwin who began to develop his thoughts on natural selection and evolution while on the expedition of the Beagle in the 1830s, 20 years after the second decade. Here's a key point. The idea of extinction, that some species of animals simply didn't exist anymore, was a controversial one. Comte de Buffon argued strongly in favor of the theory of extinction as a way to explain those weird fossils that didn't correspond to any modern animals that were still around. 
Jefferson, who thought that just about all of Buffon's ideas were flat wrong, predictably disagreed. He argued that the harmony of nature made it impossible that a species once created would ever go extinct. Logically, therefore, there was no such thing as an extinct species, only animals that lived in remote areas, like jungles or the bottom of the sea, that modern science hadn't yet got around to identifying yet. In 1801, Georges Cuvier, a French naturalist who's generally regarded as the founder of paleontology, wrote this, quote, Naturalists are still a long way from observing the totality. Each time we discover a new unknown fish or shell, we must continue to suppose that still other species yet live in far-off seas or in the inaccessible depths. End quote. Do you see where this is going? This is the intellectual stage onto which the Gloucester Sea Monster swam in the late summer of 1817, right into the middle of a high-stakes debate on nature, evolution, and the origin of species. This accounts for a lot of how the rest of the story of the monster turns out. On December 8, 1814, a group of well-to-do white men met at the home of Dr. Jacob Bigelow in Boston and founded an association to advance natural sciences. This group was originally called the New England Society for the Promotion of Natural History, but within a month its name was changed to the Linnaean Society of New England. This group of naturalists was almost custom-made to insinuate itself into the story of the Gloucester Sea Monster. Indeed, when the reports of the monster began to appear in New England newspapers, after the rash of sightings on August 10th, several members of the society, including Jacob Bigelow, took immediate notice. Studying natural species was their bailiwick, and if the monster was something never classified before, the Linnaean Society wasn't about to be beaten to the punch in naming it. John Davis, Jacob Bigelow, and Francis Gray were appointed, or appointed themselves, to the committee to investigate the monster. Davis was a federal judge appointed to the bench by President John Adams, and Gray was a successful lawyer. If this sounds more like a legal tribunal than a scientific expedition, that is not an accident. The committee fully intended to operate like a court inquest. They even sought the services of a local justice of the peace, Lonson Nash, who had formerly been a Massachusetts state senator. His job was to go around Gloucester and take depositions under oath from people who had seen the creature. Interestingly, the Linnaean Society weren't the only ones hounding witnesses in Gloucester. David Humphreys, former aide-de-camp to General George Washington, and lately a member of London's Royal Society and the American Antiquarian Society, appeared in Gloucester and also interviewed witnesses. Humphreys wrote letters about the monster to Joseph Banks, president of the Royal Society and the most prominent naturalist in England. Banks had previously taken part in Captain James Cook's expeditions to the Pacific, and had also been responsible for the famous voyage of the HMS Bounty to the South Pacific, which didn't end well for William Bly, the Bounty's captain. Banks was also involved in appointing the same Captain Bly to be governor of New South Wales Colony. I talked about that debacle in the two-part episode on Australia. The point here is that there were scientific, legal, and political minds on both sides of the Atlantic suddenly focusing a lot of attention on whatever was swimming around in Gloucester Harbor. This is not just a case of an, of an amusing story going viral in the press. Powerful people were serious about getting to the bottom of what was happening. 
Representing the Linnaean Society, London Nash was very methodical. He took several depositions in Gloucester in writing to which the witnesses were sworn. He also told the deponents not to communicate with each other until the investigation was complete. The committee came up with a list of 25 questions for each witness about the appearance of the monster, how it moved, and under what circumstances they saw it. The depositions were taken between August 21st and September 1st, 1817. Here is the deposition of one Amos Story of Gloucester, who appeared before Launson Nash under oath on August 23rd, 1817 in Essex, Massachusetts. This is a lengthy quote, so bear with me. Quote, I saw a strange marine animal that I believed to be a serpent at the southward and eastward of Ten Pound Island in the harbor in said Gloucester. It was between the hours of 12 and 1 o'clock on the 10th day of August, 1817, when I first saw him, and he continued in sight for an hour and a half. I was sitting on the shore and was about 20 rods from him when he was nearest to me. His head appeared shaped much like the head of a sea turtle, and he carried his head from 10 to 12 inches above the surface of the water. His head at that distance appeared larger than the head of any dog I ever saw. From the back part of his head to the next part of him that was visible, I should judge to be about three or four feet. He moved very rapidly through the water, I should say in a mile or two at most three minutes. I saw no bunches on his back. On this day, I did not see more than ten or twelve feet of his body. I likewise saw what I believe to be the same animal this day, the 23rd of August, A.D. 1817. This was in the morning about seven o'clock. He then lay perfectly still, extended on the water, and I should judge that I saw fifty feet of him at least. I should judge that I was forty rods from him on this day. I had a good spyglass both days when I saw him. I continued looking at him for about half an hour, and he remained still in the same position until I was called away. Neither his head nor tail were visible. His color appeared to be a dark brown, and when the sun shone upon him the reflection was very bright. I thought his body was about the size of a man's body. End quote. I quoted this deposition at length, the whole thing in fact, because it's a good example of the evidence the committee collected. The witnesses disagree with each other in various details, particularly about how big the monster was, or if it had bumps on its back or whatever, but all agreed it was a creature that looked like a serpent of some kind. Solomon Allen, a ship's captain, said he saw the monster three times on August 12th, 13th, and 14th, and that its head looked like the head of a snake, but it was the size of a horse's head. Allen was in a crowd of 30 people who saw the same thing. William Foster, a merchant, also saw the creature more than once. He insisted the thing was 40 feet long and moved at 60 miles an hour. He testified, quote, There rose from his head, or the most forward part of him, a prong or spear about 12 inches in height and 6 inches in circumference at the bottom, end quote. When asked if this was the monster's tongue, Foster said it could have been. James Mansfield, also a merchant, said the monster was 60 feet long and moved slower, a mile in five or six minutes. According to Mansfield, there was no prong sticking out of its head. Then again, he admitted he wasn't looking at the monster through a spyglass. Foster was. John Johnston, age 17, saw the creature while he was in a boat with two other guys. This was one of the few sightings at night, between 8 and 9 p.m. on the evening of August 17th. Johnson said the monster was 50 feet long, and they came within two oars' length of it until they rowed off, afraid the creature would smash their boat with its tail. Unfortunately, Johnson said, there was not sufficient light to enable me to describe the animal. William Pearson, another merchant, also saw the monster while in a boat. 
He was sailing with a friend toward Ten Pound Island in Gloucester Harbor at five in the afternoon of August 18th. The creature swam under their boat and then raised its head. According to Pearson, the monster was 70 feet long. Kind of amazing how it keeps getting longer. Curiously, Pearson was was within view of another boat where Matthew Gaffney, quoted at the beginning of this episode, fired his musket at the monster's head. Pearson thought the shot did hit the monster, but it had no effect other than making it, quote, more shy. Robert Bragg, a sailor, was aboard the schooner Laura, sailing from Newburyport to Boston when he saw the monster in a calm sea. He thought the creature was 14 or 15 feet long, had no teeth, but a tongue two feet long that was sharp at the end like a harpoon. The monster moved about 12 or 14 miles an hour. Another man aboard the same ship, and who was standing right next to Robert Bragg, corroborated this story, including the length of the monster and its sharp tongue. In addition to witnesses who saw the monster in the last few weeks of August, the committee also dug up someone else, one Elkana Finney, who claimed to have seen it months earlier on June 20th. Finney was on the shore at Plymouth, in a place called Warren's Cove, when a boy ran up and pointed out something in the water. According to Finney, the monster was 120 feet long, had a white stripe on its head, and dove repeatedly and came back up again. Finney watched the creature for two hours with a spyglass being about a quarter mile away. It moved at 15 to 20 miles an hour. So, you got all that? The monster of Gloucester Harbor is between 14 and 120 feet long. Sometimes it's dark colored, sometimes not. It may or may not have a stripe on its head. It may or may not have a pole sticking out of its forehead. It may or may not have a sharp tongue. Its head is shaped either like a snake's head or like a horse's head, and it can whiz by at 60 miles an hour or stay perfectly still and let you watch it for two hours in the same place. Oh, and it's apparently impervious to musket fire, even at close range. Quite a beastie this thing is. The committee rounded out its report with a number of other extraneous accounts. They found a letter dated 1809 where one Abraham Cummings, a minister in Penobscot, Maine, claimed that a sea serpent had been hanging around in Penobscot Bay for the last 30 years. The Penobscot monster was supposed to be 60 feet long and had a snake's head. These accounts were corroborated by other townspeople and even some British soldiers during the Revolution who reported the thing was 300 feet long, but, you know, being British, they were prone to exaggeration. The committee also dredged up the passages by Eric Pontopadan from that 1752 book, Natural History of Norway, quoting the story of Captain Ferry's encounter with the Norway Kraken off Trondheim in 1746, which, as you recall, was the tale that got the ball rolling on these modern sea monster stories in the first place. The Linnaean Society was eager to make their report and get it in print, but then a happy accident gave them something even more dramatic to put into the report. On September 27, 1817, the good people of Cape Ann, wetted by sea monster fever drummed up by all the activity in Gloucester, found something on the beach that they were sure was the offspring of the creature the progeny of the great serpent, as the report put it. Here's how they described it, quote, The animal had the general form and external characters of a serpent, but was remarkably distinguished from all others of that class known to your committee, by a row of protuberances along the back, apparently formed by undulations of the spine. I'm going to end the quote there, but that's not really the end of the quote. The report goes on for several more pages in exhausting detail about the external features of the snake-like creature, and the internal ones too. Yes, they dissected it, of course. 
The snake found at Cape Ann was about three feet long, not so impressive for the juvenile form of a monster supposed to be 120 feet long. I don't know, maybe they grow a lot when they hit puberty? Anyway, the Linnaean Society Committee on the Monster had everything they thought they needed to reach the finish line that they were desperate to get to, the declaration that they'd found a previously unknown species. They were hasty to reach this conclusion, quote, The appearance at nearly the same time and place of two creatures, agreeing with each other in certain important and conspicuous particulars, disagreeing in the most remarkable of these particulars with other animals of their class, and between whom no difference but that of size has been discovered, must naturally lead to a conjecture that they are of the same species. The evidences in favor of this supposition are so considerable that your committee would not be justified in neglecting to direct your attention to them. End quote. The Linnaean Society of New England triumphantly named the Gloucester Monster and its pint-sized baby Scoliophus Atlanticus, a new species never before found, this justifying Jefferson's view, he rejected the idea of extinction, remember, Jefferson's view that there was no such thing as an extinct species, only ones that modern science hadn't discovered yet. Take that, Comte de Buffon. The Society's report was rushed into print in Boston in October 1817, just two months after the monster first appeared in reliable reports. Some were understandably skeptical about the reports, but this was hardly the end of the matter. The Linnaean Society had collected accounts of the monster and supposedly dissected a baby specimen. But the next logical step, you can hear this coming, right? The next logical step was to capture a full-grown specimen. David Humphreys, you remember, Washington's former aide-de-camp, wrote excitedly to Joseph Banks at the Royal Society in London that a bounty of several thousand dollars had been offered for the capture of the Gloucester Sea Monster. Find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. A shed was set up in Boston's Faneuil Hall to display the monster once it was finally captured. By the next summer, 1818, the Massachusetts coast was buzzing with monster reports. Sure enough, Boston papers started reporting a rash of fresh sightings in July. A man named William Sargent reported coming close enough to it that he could have touched it with an oar. Tourists were now streaming into Gloucester to catch sight of the creature, or perhaps to catch it, if they were lucky. A grizzled old sea captain named Quint, sorry, named Richard Rich, yes, it really was his name, Richie Rich, Anyway, he organized an expedition to find and kill the sea monster. As the mates aboard his vessel, he signed on eight of the guys who had testified to the Linnaean Society the year before about seeing it. If you're expecting an epic Moby Dick-style sea chase and a climactic battle with a giant aquatic monster, unfortunately you're going to be disappointed. Just as the people of New England were when the Boston Weekly Messenger reported in early September that Captain Richie Rich had not only caught and killed the monster, but he brought it back with him. Richie Rich said this, quote, My crew all agreed to a man that what we then saw was the supposed serpent, which had been seen both at that place and at Gloucester Harbor. I was perfectly satisfied, so precisely did it answer to the description that had been given of him, that I had never approached nearer I could with satisfaction to my own mind. Given testimony upon oath that I had seen a serpent no less than 100 feet in length. By following it up closely, we have ascertained that the supposed serpent is no other than the wake of such a fish as we have taken. End quote. So what did Rich and his crew haul out of the water? What in 1818 they called a thunny or a horse mackerel, and what we call a tuna.
The key to figuring out what the sea monster was to, was to notice that all the reports of it were from days when the sea was calm. When a large fish like a tuna travels just under the surface of calm water, it'll make a series of ripples that look like the ridges of a sea serpent, and the tail can protrude above the water, resembling from, the, from a distance a head. The editor of the Weekly Messenger was skeptical. To his credit, he did present Richie Rich's report accurately, but then he left it to the readers to decide who to believe, Richie Rich's lion eyes and his phony baloney giant tuna story, or the careful eyewitness accounts of all those upstanding citizens who testified the previous summer about the monster they'd seen. You Decide was a common dodge in newspapers in the second decade when they didn't want to take a side. The cognitive dissonance of the Linnaean Society was looking increasingly ridiculous. Naturalist and professor Konstantin Rafenesk Schmaltz, yes, that really was his name, this guy who thought from the beginning that the monster was a kind of sea snake long known to science, wrote this, quote, Whenever a singular phenomenon or, ex- or an extraordinary natural occurrence happens to be observed in the U.S., whether spots in the sun, huge fossil bones, or sea serpents, a crowd of superficial writers hastens to offer us, instead of facts, their own ideas and conjectures on the subject which prove sometimes more or less ingenious, but often wild, incorrect, or ridiculous. End quote. Even some of the witnesses of the creature were reluctant to tell their stories for fear of ridicule. T.H. Perkins, one of the wealthiest merchants in Boston, had traveled up to Gloucester in the summer of 1817, saw the creature, and his report, recorded years later, essentially agreed with most of the believers. But he didn't tell his story publicly until 1848, six years before his death, and privately only to a very few. Perkins is said to have admitted to the famous geologist and naturalist Charles Lyell when he visited the United States in 1845 that yes, he had seen the monster, but because every odd occurrence in the U.S. was ridiculed as a quote-unquote snake story, he was reluctant to come forward. Tales like this, however, just won't die. Despite the lack of any real evidence that there was a 120-foot sea monster out there, people kept claiming they saw it. A similar monster was seen the next year, 1819, off Nahant, Massachusetts. A similar creature was reported again in the 1880s. That was even before the Loch Ness Monster exploded into pop culture in the 1930s. So what do we make of the monster of Gloucester? There are too many big and weird-looking things in the ocean that are rarely seen to dismiss it totally. I already talked about oarfish, which are known and documented by science, and globsters, which are real. Most of them have been identified as pieces of whale carcasses. And there are life forms in the ocean that largely elude human observation. A giant and very ugly fish called a coelacanth, which was previously believed to be extinct for the last 65 million years, was found alive off the coast of South Africa in 1938. The giant squid, famed in folklore since antiquity, lives so deep in the ocean that it was never seen alive until this century, when one was captured on camera in 2004. But these facts still make it a hard sell to believe that a monster unknown to science was really tooling around in Gloucester Harbor in Massachusetts in 1817. Despite all the hype, the tale of the sea serpent strikes me as little more than a second decade fish story. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. 
check out the other great podcasts on the Recorded History Network, including Dead Ideas, Explorers, Election College, History of Vikings, and Useless Information. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account, that's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Report of a Committee of the Linnaean Society of New England Relative to a Large Marine Animal, Boston, Cummings and Hilliard, 1817, Gloucester's Sea Serpent by Wayne Soini, History Press, 2010, and the article The Monstrous Serpent Was Real by Ben Shattuck, Salon.com, August 10th, 2013. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.